Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Galatians 3, verse 26. Hear now the living and abiding word of the Lord. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. All of God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Let us go to the Lord in prayer now. Our Father in heaven, what love you have bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. We thank you for this passage inspired by the Spirit given through our brother, the Apostle Paul, for our benefit. And we ask now as we come to this passage that you would illuminate it by the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Imply it to our hearts. Grant us the comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I've given you all two sets of notes. Uh, there's the children's notes, of course, which are pretty similar to the way they usually are, except that I put the Bible text on there. I realized we had all this wasted space, so we might as well put the Bible text if it fits. And then there are some adult notes, or young adult notes, as the case may be. And there's a back page to that, which you don't need to look at right now. There's just a lot of extra helpful quotes that... I found and that I wanted to share, but will not be a part of the message itself. It would take much too long to go through all of them and would be a bit of a rabbit trail. But they're there for you if you're interested. Uh, So as we come back to Galatians today, we have seen each time we've been in this letter that Paul is unfolding for us the riches, the beauty, and the wonder of the true gospel. It's true that it's against the backdrop of all of this controversy and false teaching that is happening in the Galatian churches. That's certainly in the mix, but what he wants us to grasp is the wonders of this true gospel, lest we depart from it, lest we miss it. The false brothers that were there in Galatia claimed that their understanding of the gospel was good news, but it was in fact very bad news. It was depressing news. It was news that would lead them back into bondage and the curse of the law. This is not not good news. It's not news befitting the word gospel, which means glad tidings. So what Paul does in this letter is to show what the real gospel is against this false gospel, this, this news that is not good news, in order that we may see what we have received through the preaching of the gospel and in Christ. It's like taking the most marvelous and beautiful and biggest diamond you've ever seen and then comparing it to a lump of coal. You hold these two things up and you think, which one do I think is beautiful? Which one is attractive? It's the diamond. The, the coal, we think, there's, it's malformed, it's ugly, it's dirty. But then there's this glorious diamond of the gospel, and that is what Paul does for us throughout this letter. He wants us to grasp what an amazing inheritance we have in Christ. And what he does in this passage is to show us the privileges that we have as children of God. These privileges all come through faith in Jesus Christ. We are united to Jesus. We become one with him by faith. And then all these blessings flow to us through him. John Owen once said that our greatest hindrance in the Christian life is not our lack of effort, but our lack of acquaintedness with our privileges. It's one of those statements that you wonder, okay, is it too simplistic or not? But the point is that he was reflecting upon the fact that if we would but grasp the privileges that we have in Christ so much of the rest of the Christian life would begin to work itself out. As we would grasp the love of God for us, we'd begin to love people. Uh, As we grasp what it means that Jesus Christ has saved us and set us free from sin, we, we walk in newness of life. And so we need to get, we need to grasp these privileges. And so what Paul is doing for us is he's setting forth the grandeur of what it means to be 
in Christ. And in particular, the beauty of what we call adoption, that we are the sons of God or the children of God. And if you miss this biblical truth of adoption, you are bound to make significant mistakes in the Christian life. You are bound to have spiritual problems that will come if you do not grasp your adoption. Numerous spiritual maladies tend to arise from not understanding your adoption in Christ. Many experience a constant anxiety concerning their relationship with God. They're wondering, what what does God really think of me? They begin to view God as a hard master, a God that's never pleased. He's always demanding more, and we just can't keep up with his demands. You begin to view God's commandments as a burdensome thing when you don't have adoption. And people begin to view the Christian life as this divine vending machine. Their religion becomes this very externalistic and very merit-oriented system. And and like a vending machine, you put some quarters of good works in, and you're supposed to get something out, right? That's just the way it works, one would think. And then people get very frustrated when God doesn't just give them what they thought they deserved for the good work that they did. And all of this flows out of a very wrong perspective of our relationship with God. What does it mean to be a child of God? What are the implications of saying, I am a son or a daughter of the living God? What, what security does that provide you? If you know you have your adoption papers, you know for sure that you are in relationship, in, in a safe and stable relationship with the Heavenly Father. And so there are three major topics that we want to draw out of this passage today. And even though it is just four verses, it is a very deep well. It's hard to get all the water out of it. We're going to try to dig into this or dip into this well and pull some water out. But we're only going to be able to dip out a portion of the the good water that is here. But the three topics that we're going to look at are, first of all, the manifold blessings of adoption. And that's from verse 26 when it says, you are the sons of God. Second topic is the that we're baptized into Christ. He says that in verse 27. And then the third topic is that we are one in Christ with one another as an effect of being united to our Savior. So those are the three topics that we're going to try to dig into uh, this morning. So we begin with the first one, the manifold blessings of adoption. And this is verse 26. He says, For you are all sons of God, through faith in Christ Jesus. Now let's keep in mind where we came from last time. It was uh, two weeks ago that we were in Galatians, and in the previous section, Paul was saying that when we were under the law, we were under a tutor or a guardian, and that this guardian kept track of us and disciplined us, and we were not that free. We had to listen to the guardian. Sometimes the guardian would discipline us for our failures, and that's how the law functioned for Israel, and then by extension, anybody that's outside of Christ, they're under the law, and this law is this guardian, this harsh disciplinarian. But then there's a point at which we come of age, Kids grow up. That's what they always do. They don't stay uh, 8 or 10 or 12. They, they become 18, and, and they become adults. And eventually, in this system, there was no need for a guardian anymore. The guardian's gone. And this is what Paul is speaking about when he talks about adoption. It's not just whether we're children of God, but also whether we've come to this stage of maturing, this maturity and the freedom that comes from being a child of God, but a mature child of God, no longer under a guardian. Now, what he says in verse 26 is that this adoption, this status of being a child of God, comes by faith in Christ Jesus. And so, children, this is the first point in your notes. We become children of God by believing in Jesus Christ. It's very simple. How do you become a child of God? Well, Paul says it's not by circumcision. It's not by anything else that you do. It is by believing In the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now to help explain what it means to be adopted, I do want to reference the catechism that we read earlier. And just as a review, whenever we from this pulpit reference the catechism or the confessions, remember that we are only using these as teaching tools. They're not equal to the Word of God in terms of their authority. It's the Word of God alone is inspired. 
These are just tools that help us summarize what the Bible teaches. When you're trying to get at what does the Bible say about this topic, the catechism or the confession can help you uh, in summarizing because all it does is bring together all these Bible verses and then summarize what they mean for you. And so I want to look at that larger catechism question again on adoption and I'll read it once more. It says, Adoption is an act of the free grace of God in and for his only Son, Jesus Christ, whereby all those that are justified are received into the number of his children, have his name put upon them, the spirit of his Son given to them, are under his fatherly care and dispensations, admitted to all the liberties and privileges of the sons of God, made heirs of all the promises and fellow heirs with Christ in glory. What a list. You can see, I think, if you look at this list, with every single one of these lines has a a scripture text that goes behind it, adoption is a really big deal. And when you come to such a big doctrine like this, we're not going to be able to plumb the depths of the riches of this doctrine in the limited time that we have. Thankfully, he brings it back a lot of, many other times in Galatians, so I have the opportunity in later messages to come back to it. But we do want to look at this doctrine and consider what does it mean to be a, a child of God? And it is a, it is a vast topic in, in terms of its consideration. And if you've ever climbed a Colorado 14er, or a 13 or 12 or if you want, it doesn't matter. But if you've ever gotten to one of the top of these great mountains and you've looked out, you, you have to just try to drink it all in, right? You, you, it's hard to see everything that could be seen because you're so high up. I've only been up to the top of 114ers so far, but when I got there, I was amazed. I was like, I just got to sit here and drink this in. And when it comes to some of these biblical doctrines, that's what we have to do. We have to drink them in. We have to ponder them. We have to look at them for a time. And we're not going to probably get to see everything all in one view. But with that in in mind, let us dig into a few of these categories of adoption, the the privileges that come from being a child of God. And the first I want to consider that was in this list is God's fatherly care. It says that we're under God's fatherly care and dispensations. That means his providence in our lives, that That if God is your father, that he cares for you. He loves you. He ordains all things for your good. If we are the sons and daughters of the living God, then we have confidence in God as our father. He has demonstrated his love to us not only by his words, which are infallible in the word of God, but by his actions. He gave his only son for us. This is how God demonstrates his love, right? That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God gave his only son for us. And then Paul reasons, how will he not freely give us all other things as well? Now, when it comes to considering God as our father, we, we, I know that some people can struggle with this. And, and we struggle with it for different reasons. Of course, there are some of us that had uh, earthly fathers that were perhaps completely absent from our lives. That's hard. You may have had a father who was hurtful or abusive to you. Or perhaps in general, you can say, I I had a good father, but I can think about about a lot of his imperfections. And in some cases, for various reasons, the imperfections might seem to weigh more heavily in our minds than the good things about our earthly father. Then, on the other hand, you might be in the category of predominantly your thoughts about your earthly father are very good. And I say that just to recognize there's a whole range of understanding, a whole range of experience when it comes to this idea of fatherhood. And some people, because of very difficult experiences, they come to this idea of God as their father, and the idea of fatherhood has been so corrupted in their minds, so uh, poorly exampled to them, that they struggle to receive these things. And in light of that, I want to tell you that what the Word of God says about God as a father must reshape your thinking. Wherever you come from in that spectrum, you need your thinking reshaped by what the Word of God says. To have God as your father is to have an infinitely and immutably loving father. It is to have a God of of infinite mercy. This is a father 
that never fails to love, that is always merciful, that is always gracious, who always cares for you. This is a father that will never let you down. He will never mistreat you. He will never forget about you. He will never ignore you. And we are under his his fatherly care, the word of God says. For example, just to give you one biblical example, in Matthew chapter 6, the passage on worry, we come to that passage and Jesus says, do not worry about your food and your clothing and all these other things. And as he comes to the end of that passage in Matthew 6, 31 through 32, listen to what he says. He says, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles seek. And then he says, for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Why didn't Jesus just say, God knows you need all these things? Well, no, he said, your heavenly Father knows you need all these things. He's a good Father. He knows exactly what you need, when you need it, how you need it. He never leaves us or forsakes us. So to have God as your Father is to have this God as the one who cares for you. And this comes by means of your union with Jesus Christ. It's part of the whole package. So that's one aspect of of adoption. Another one is that we receive the Holy Spirit as a gift. And I I somewhat randomized these because I couldn't get to all of them. We'll get to more of them in future messages. But consider the gift of the Holy Spirit. We talked about this in a previous message, uh, but Paul's going to bring it up in Galatians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, which we'll do in a few weeks, Lord willing. Paul says there, he says, Because you are sons... God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So what this is telling us is that God has sent forth the spirit into your heart, if you are a believer in Christ. And what that spirit does, the spirit makes you cry out, Abba, Father. Now, what does it mean to cry out, Abba, Father? Well, of course, we know Abba is this Aramaic uh, term for father. It's an, it's an intimate term. And then uh, the word father here is just translated from the Greek for father. And so he's saying father twice, but he's using a term of intimacy. And he's saying that what the Spirit of God does when it comes into the heart of a believer is to make them cry out with such confidence and intimacy when they pray. We know that part of this is the Spirit of God testifying to our souls that we are the children of God. That's in Romans 8. That the Spirit assures us, gives us a confidence that God is our Father. That God is not this wrathful God that is, is out to get us, but is a God who loves us. And so... In in other words, the the Spirit comforts, the Spirit assures, the Spirit strengthens, and this is all a gift that comes by means of our adoption. We'll return to this in more detail in later messages. The third aspect of adoption, the third blessing I want to consider with you is that we are heirs with Christ. And this is in our passage today, Galatians 3.29. It says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now, what does that mean? What, what, is, what does it mean to be an heir uh, with, with Christ? What are we getting? That's, that's the question that should come to your mind. What, what do I inherit? And this is, of course, something that we should understand from human adoption. We've seen something of the reality of this when a human adoption, you, you have a, a child that is across the ocean. They're, they're orphaned. And then someone travels across the ocean to go get them. And, and they bring them back. And they adopt them into their family. And the, the, the last name of that adopting family is now directly applied to that child who has been adopted. And that child now begins to enjoy all the privileges of being a part of that new family. They're not second-class citizens in the home. They don't have to work up to that identity like you have to, it's going to be 10 years before you get our last name. You're going to have to work into it. No, that's not how it works. You are are a child. You are an adopted child. You are part of our family, truly. And part of being part of the family is you get an inheritance. 
that whatever passes down from us becomes yours if you're an adopted child. Now, it was the same way with all of us when we were outside of Christ, that we were like those the orphan children uh, far removed. And Paul speaks of this in Ephesians 2. He says, before we were adopted as the children of God, he says, we were without hope and without God in the world. We, we didn't have God as our, our father. We didn't have Christ as our savior. We didn't have an inheritance awaiting us. What awaited us when we were without hope and without God in the world? Death and judgment. That's what awaits anyone outside of Christ. They're awaiting death and judgment. That's what the Bible says, is after death comes judgment. What's the hope there? And so if, if you are outside of Christ, if you have not put your faith in him, then you cannot say the same things with confidence. You cannot say that you are adopted. You cannot call God your heavenly father. But if you turn to Christ by faith, repent of your sins, then you can say all of these things. This can become true of you today if you believe in these promises. And so if we have been adopted into the family of God, we are heirs of God with Christ The Almighty God, the maker of heaven and earth, so loved us that he sought us out. He drew us with cords of love by means of the Holy Spirit. He opened our hearts to receive the gospel. We put our faith in his Son, and having done so, we were justified. We were declared righteous in his sight. And then we were made a a member of his family. And now we do not await a fearful day of judgment with the expectation of condemnation. Now we await with anticipation the return of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we await our inheritance. We talked about inheritance a little bit last time. What what does this include? We know it includes eternal life. Fellowship with God forever. And it includes joys unspeakable, things that you cannot even comprehend right now in your fallen, finite state. You cannot even comprehend the blessings that are coming to you in Christ. That's why Ephesians 2 says that in the ages to come, he's going to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. It's going to take eternity to show you the immeasurable riches of God. A new heavens and a new earth with an abundance of delights awaits us. Our greatest reward will be the communion that we enjoy with our God. And with it will be fellowship with one another forever as well. Now these are just some of the manifold blessings of adoption. We can't can't get into all of them today, but I, I hope that you can see something of the grandeur of this. And you can see why when John wrote in 1 John 3, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. That word behold, it's saying, look at this, pay attention to this. Do you see the love of God bestowed upon you to be called a child of God? So that's the first aspect of our passage is that we are the sons of God through faith. Now the second that Paul brings out is that we, are, we have been baptized into Christ. This is Galatians 3.27. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, if you want to organize all the topics in this passage under one word, I think the word identity is a good word. First of all, we dealt with adoption, our identity as the children of God. That's very clear. Now, the next one is this identity that happens through baptism, that if we have been baptized into Christ, the passage says, we have put on Christ. Christ. And the implications of that for the Galatians, especially, was that they needed to understand that all this hubbub about needing circumcision, needing feast days, needing to do all these other things was irrelevant, wrong and irrelevant, because they were already the children of God. They had already put on Christ if they had been baptized. There was all these other things that had already happened when they received the gospel. And it spoke to their identity very importantly. Now this brings us to consider why does Paul talk about baptism here at this point in Galatians? Well, it's important to note that this is a New Testament letter concerned about circumcision especially. And whether circumcision was the outward identifying marker of who was in God's family. That was a key question 
who's in? And, and the claim of the false teachers was, you've got to be circumcised for you to be in. And so it's noteworthy that Paul brings up the topic of baptism in the midst of that discussion. Now some have wondered, are there connections in the Bible between circumcision and baptism? And there's debates and differences in perspective about that. But I want you to just consider the fact, whatever your perspective of those connections are, is that in the context of a letter about whether circumcision is an identifying marker of a child of God and a son of Abraham, Paul points to baptism as a key identifying marker. Paul says, do you want to know who the true sons of God are and who the children of Abraham are? Well, most importantly, he says, they're the believing ones. They're the ones of faith. That is absolutely central. But he also says they're the baptized ones. And that is fascinating to me. Now, how do we deal with this language? Because when you read it, it says... If you've been baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. That seems very much connected, does it not? And when you come to passages in the Bible about baptism, you'll often find that the act, the outward act of water baptism, is associated with the blessings that are promised in baptism. And I I use the word associated because we're going to have to draw out what is the nature of that connection. I just want to read a few passages to you to consider how the Bible does often talk about baptism and the blessings of it in connection. Acts 2.38 is one example. It says, Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's the connection? Well, it's the word and. That doesn't exactly explain it, does it? But... That's, that's the word. There's a connection of and. Okay, you'd be baptized for the remission of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's, there's one example. Here's another one. Acts 22, verse 16. This is uh, Ananias speaking to Paul after his experience on the Damascus Road. Uh, Acts twenty-two sixteen. he says, And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. It's interesting, right? He's going to be baptized and he's going to wash away his sins. Are these things associated? Another example, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, very similar to our passage in Galatians. Paul writes, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So he says you've been baptized, you've been baptized into Christ's death, you've risen again with him, you walk now in newness of life as a result of that identification with him. One more passage, 1 Peter 3, verse 21, it says, There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of of Jesus Christ. So he says there is this type, this anti-type, uh, and it's baptism, and it says it now saves you. And then he clarifies, he, he does uh, give some qualifications to that. It's not just the removal of dirt from the body, but it's this appeal to God for a good conscience. Now all of those I read to you just to give you a sense of how the New Testament does draw connections between baptism and the blessings of it. Now, how do we deal with those connections? Well, I'm going to give you two opposite poles of how those connections are are made or or distinguished, as the case may be. And then I want to give you my perspective on how to understand verse 27. And then we want to go to what are the implications of it. So there's a little bit of, of groundwork we need to lay to get there. So there's two poles of how to deal with this language because it makes baptism sound very effective. Baptism seems to be doing things according to these passages. So how do we deal with that? The pole number one I would call is that baptism is always effective in bringing about the spiritual blessings signified. This is basically the idea that water baptism is an automatic thing. We know that the Roman Catholic Church teaches this, that when someone is baptized, they are regenerated, they are justified, they are united with Christ, 
And unless they commit a mortal sin, they're righteous. Now, if they commit a sin, they're going to lose the grace of justification. They're going to have to confess. They're going to have to do the the sacrament of penance. Then they can be restored. And on the process goes. But for them, baptism does that. It, it, It makes those things happen. It regenerates. Another version of this is something that the churches of Christ tend to teach. They they do teach that baptism, water baptism, is an absolute necessity for salvation. They tie new life in Christ with the act of water baptism. They happen together. You must be baptized with water. So that's one poll. You can read these passages and it just looks like the blessings are connected to baptism. So obviously you just have to have water baptism for the blessings to come. Now there's another way of dealing with this language and I call that poll number two. And this approach is to sharply distinguish between water baptism and spirit baptism. Sharply distinguish them. Keep them very separate in your mind. That's what this poll does. And so sometimes when people come to a a verse like verse 27 of Galatians 3, and and it looks like it is very effective, baptism is very effective, and they say that's not water baptism, since water baptism doesn't bring that about. This is only describing what happens by means of the Holy Spirit's baptism. This is not water baptism. They very much separate these things. Now, there's real and valid concerns in drawing a distinction with that. We want to protect against seeing baptism or the Lord's Supper as automatically working in and of themselves. That apart from faith, it just happens. It happens automatically. Or to make the act of water baptism absolutely essential for someone's salvation. We want to guard against that too, because we know it's by faith alone that we're justified. So those are all very real and valid concerns, but... What did Paul mean when he said in Romans 6, when he told the Romans, he says, Do you not know that those who were baptized were baptized into Christ's death? Do you think the Romans were to not think of their water baptism, but to only think of their spirit baptism? Some people take it that way. But the implication would be that they can't even look to their physical baptism uh, as if it doesn't even matter. Isn't the whole point of baptism being physical so that it could be something we can see? Isn't the whole point of baptism and the Lord's Supper being visible, sensible, physical sacraments for us to be able to see what they mean, for them to communicate, in a sense, visually to us, the promises of God? I believe that baptism is meant... Water baptism is meant to point us to the promises and the blessings that come by faith. I wholeheartedly believe that water baptism is not going to save anyone apart from faith. It can't do anything apart from faith. Our confession has a very helpful statement on this, uh, and I'll read that to you. It says, The efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet, notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. Let me unfold that for you. It's saying... That what baptism promises, which is remission of sins, new life in Christ, union with Christ, it says it's not tied to the moment you put water on somebody. And that's why when we have a baptism up here, we, we, we appeal to God, we say, Lord, we've baptized this person with water in the name of the triune God. Now we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do an internal work within them. Because we don't tie it to the very moment that that takes place. Now, it could have happened before we baptized them. It could happen after we baptize them, or theoretically it could happen when we baptize them. The point is, it's not tied to that very moment. And the reason that we believe this is because the Holy Spirit is sovereign. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and he talked about the new birth, he said, the Spirit goes where it wills. The Spirit is like the wind. You can see its effects. 
but you can't see it itself, and it goes where it wills. So when the Spirit of God sovereignly determines to bring forth new life in someone baptized, that is the will of the Holy Spirit. And so when we come to a passage like verse 27, we're not saying that water baptism automatically does these things. What we are saying is that baptism is a meaningful, visual demonstration of our union with Jesus Christ. Now, it's not effective unless we believe in Jesus Christ. It's not going to do anything for us if we don't have faith. But if we have faith and we look at this visual representation of our union with Christ, it is a meaningful God-ordained sign in order to confirm us, to comfort us. In other words, it is meant to encourage your faith. And so this is what I believe what Paul is pointing to, is he's saying to the Galatians, do you remember your baptism? Don't you remember what that meant, that you have now put on Christ? Don't forget what that means. And so, yes, we do need to carefully, we need to distinguish that Water baptism does not automatically do these things, but let us not talk so much about what baptism doesn't do, lest we forget what it's meant to communicate, what, it, what it's meant to do, and in terms of encouraging our faith. Jesus gave us these visual sacraments for the strengthening of our faith. And so anytime you see somebody up here getting baptized, you need to be thinking back to your own baptism. You need to be saying, that is what happened to me, the name of God has been placed upon me. The promises of forgiveness of sins, new life in Christ, walking in newness of life, that's all symbolized for me in this act of baptism. And that's why Martin Luther, he would often remind himself whenever he was struggling with temptation, he would would say, I am a baptized man. I am a baptized man. I'm not going to do that. That's not consistent with what a baptized man would do. And of course, that's just Romans 6. It's just speaking about what Romans 6 points us to. If you've been baptized into Christ's death and his, his resurrection, walk in newness of life. Now let's go to the implications of this, the application for us. Notice the language. It says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This is truly a a verb and a picture that means to put on clothes. It's the very same verb that would be used for putting on some clothes. And Paul is saying that when you were baptized, you were taking off those filthy, dirty rags of sin, and you were putting on the beautiful, new, perfect robe of Christ's righteousness. You are now white before God, washed clean. And so, children, this is the second point in your notes. Baptism is a picture of us putting on the robe of Jesus Christ. It is a picture of being clothed with Jesus. Now, in some of the uh, baptismal practices of the early church, you'll find some of these early church documents, and you'll find a very interesting practice that they would do. And I, I mention this practice not because I think we need to do this. It's not biblically sanctioned. But it was noteworthy that they were grasping the imagery of baptism pretty well. And some of the early church baptisms, what they would do is they would have the person baptized, and as the person came up out of the water, if it was an immersion, many of them were, when that happened, they would put a white robe on the person as they departed from those waters. The the robe of Christ's righteousness was put upon them. And then many cases, they would actually give them honey and milk, Seems kind of interesting. You get a snack after baptism. And the idea, of course, was that you're entering into the promised land. It was, it was Old Testament imagery and saying, now you're, you're entering into the promised land through Christ. It's very interesting, interesting uh, imagery, and, but I, I appreciate that they were grasping that you're putting on the robe of Christ. Now, you don't need an actual robe to do that, but we do need to grasp that imagery for us. And so this, this visual confirmation of our cleansing in Christ is what we need to grasp any time that we see baptism. And it reminded me so much of the prophecy of Isaiah 61. We read this earlier when our brother Todd was doing the scripture reading. Listen to these, these beautiful words from Isaiah 61. 
I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. That's what Paul is talking about. We've been robed with God's salvation in Christ. And so baptism then is meant to be a significant encouragement to us. And so as we, as we go on now, we come to the final topic of our passage, verses 28 through 29, that we are now together one in Christ. These final two verses of our passage, they describe the unifying effect that comes when we believe in Christ. That every single member of Christ's church is brought into fellowship with one another. We're, we're, uni- we're united to Jesus, but then we also become united to one another. It's an inevitable effect uh, that Paul is describing here. Now, you know that these verses, of course, are very relevant for what's happening in Galatia because the, the false teachers are trying to draw a strong distinction between Jew and Gentile, right? They're saying, there's Jews over here, there's Gentiles over here. If Gentiles want to get in through Christ, that's great. They're going to still have to do a number of these other things in addition, and so there was a strong distinction taking place, and Paul is saying, this has all been broken down. doesn't matter anymore, these distinctions. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amen. Now, having grown up in American society in the 21st century, I do not think that we grasp how radical these words are. We're so used to discussions about the evils of racism. Uh, we're, we're used to discussions about the ideology of feminism and how it attempts to equalize the place of men and women and societal involvement and all the roles being equalized. And we're well aware of modern perspectives on slavery. We're aware of the evils of slavery in the past. So we, we have all of this modern perspective, and there's very much a sense in which we live in an egalitarian society where everything's attempting to be leveled, in some cases not only leveled, but we're actually putting people back onto certain tiers as being more important, ironically. But remember that these words were not written in the 21st century. They were written in the first century. They were written at a time when division between Jew and Gentile was massive. It was a chasm. Very little interactions between Jew and Gentiles in terms of friendships, eating together, interactions of that sort. This didn't happen. And this is a time in which the Roman Empire, a great majority of the population are slaves. This is very impactful to have words like this in Galatians 3. It was written at a time when the role of women in society was quite different than the present day and that in the context of pagan religion and even to some degree in Judaism, there were ways in which women were actually viewed as less valuable by many. Now to give you a few examples, you can actually find this in some of the religious literature of the first century and there's a, there's a famous prayer attributed to Socrates praying to the, the, the Greek gods and The prayer went something like this. He prayed with gratitude that he was born a human being and not a beast, next a man and not a woman, and thirdly a Greek and not a barbarian. So that was what he was giving thanks to the false gods for. He said, I am a Greek. Well, actually first, I am a human. That's important. I am a man. I'm not a woman. And I am a Greek, not a barbarian. That was what he prided himself on. But then, of course, you, you, t- you look at some of the prayers of the Jews at this time, and it gets reversed. They're thankful they're not Greeks. It's ironic. And here's one example of that, uh, such prayer, that this is found in some of the first century literature. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a foreigner. Blessed art thou, O Lord our King, King of the universe, who has not made me a slave. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. See, this is, this is the kind of prayers that you could find in this first century literature. It gives you a sense of why Galatians chapter 3, 28 and 29 are relevant, is it? doesn't it? And so the Jew is saying, I'm so thankful I'm not a Greek, and I'm not a woman, and I'm not a slave. I'm in the best position possible. And then Socrates is so thankful that he's not a slave, of course, but not a woman, and not a Jew, or not a, uh, 
not a barbarian, not somebody outside of that great civilized Greek race. Now, and you see in all of this a perspective that continues throughout fallen humanity. This is not really that unique. We, we find that enter into any culture of the world, and you find divisions of these kinds. You find ethnic divisions. You find racial divisions. You find gender divisions in terms of conflict and confusion. And this is what happens in a fallen world where people are driven by pride and self-interest, and they want to elevate their identity and their power above others. But that's not the way it works in the church of Jesus Christ. In the church of Jesus Christ, Jesus reconciles us and creates a new humanity. And it doesn't matter what the background was. It doesn't matter if you were a Greek or a Jew, woman or man, slave or free. You all worship at the feet of the same Savior. And children, this is the third point in your notes. Number three, by believing in the same Savior... We are made into one body, and we are all equally valuable to God. He puts men and women together, serving alongside one another in in the common ministry of the church, not, not viewed as superior and inferior, but human beings, both made in the image of God and of equal value to their Lord. We know that when Paul says there's neither male nor female, he wasn't deleting all gender distinctions, wasn't deleting all role distinctions because, of course, in some of the very same letters where he talks about these things, he talks about the different roles and the different responsibilities and relationships of men and women in marriage and uh, slaves and masters. He deals with all of that. But what Paul is saying is that before God and in Christ, these, these, these distinctions do not matter at all. This is profound. No matter our ethnic background, no matter our social standing, no matter our gender, all those who come to, by faith in Jesus Christ are united as one body. They are heirs of a great inheritance. We know that most conflicts in the world revolve around these things, all these struggles taking place. Look at any war and you're going to find some of these kinds of things underlying the struggle. We know that relationships between men and women are also corrupted by sin. There are all different kinds of ways in which sin corrupts these relationships between man and woman. We have mistreatment, power struggles, pride, sexual lust. All of these things damage relationships between men and women. And the world tries thousands of of philosophies and ideologies to help solve these conflicts. And yet the conflicts continue, don't they? How many countries of the world do we still see the mistreatment of women taking place? It's a major problem, isn't it? What about the problem of racism? Has it been solved? Far from it. These conflicts and divisions run so deep in the human heart that no philosophy or ideology will ultimately solve the problem, whether it be feminism or critical race theory. They're not going to do the job. They're not going to fix these divisions. They're not going to fix the human heart that wants to divide and wants to elevate and diminish. That's what people do. But it is only by the powerful, redeeming work of Jesus Christ that these problems are resolved. We learned at the very beginning of Galatians 1 why Jesus came. Paul wrote, he says, Jesus Christ was came to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He was given for our sins to deliver us from all these present evils. And so what Jesus does in his church is to unite all of these different kinds of people that would otherwise be irreconcilable into one body. And when Jesus saves a man or a woman, a slave or a free person, Uh, A Jew or a Gentile, he, by his powerful Holy Spirit, makes a new creation. And Paul's going to write about that in Galatians 6.15. He says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. And when you have new creations, all different kinds of amazing things start to happen. A new community, baptized into Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, living by faith in the Son of God. They begin to live together in a unity that is amazing. Now what is the application of this, this this unity that Jesus has produced? Well, one of the important applications, of course, is how do we treat one another? 
do we really treat one another as fellow members of the body of Christ? Do we allow things to get in the way of that? Do we allow different ages, different ethnic backgrounds, different genders, different income levels to get in the way of receiving one another as Christ has received us? How do we treat one another? Paul writes in Romans 15, verse 7, he says, Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. That, that's a very, very big standard to seek after, isn't it? As Christ has received us. What a high standard we have for our relationships in the body of Christ, that Christ received us weak, guilty, unclean, and hell-bound sinners by saving us, cleansing us, and establishing fellowship with us. That's how Christ did it. How then do we receive one another? Do we act in the same manner toward one another? Do we value one another? Do we build one another up? Do we forgive one another from the heart? Do we pour ourselves out in care for one another? This is what it would mean if we grasp the implications of what it means to be one together in Christ. So to sum up what we have seen today, brothers and sisters, we've looked at the amazing privilege of adoption We've seen that we are to reflect upon the the beauty of baptism and the meaning of baptism as uniting us to Christ, as representing our union with Christ. And we have seen how Jesus Christ creates this new humanity, uniting all these people together. And all of this is intended to show us that beautiful diamond of the true gospel so that we appreciate it, that we understand it, that we live consistent with it. And so this is what the true good news achieves, brothers and sisters. This is what Christ has achieved. And so let us give glory to God as we pray in light of what we've learned today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what love you have bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. We thank you for the blessed privilege of being your children and having you to be our God and our Father in heaven who cares for us with an infinite and never-failing love. We praise you, our Lord Jesus, for your redemption that by faith becomes ours. We thank you that we receive this great inheritance. Lord, we ask that you would impress this word upon our hearts, that it would fill us with joy and with confidence, with assurance, knowing our adoption and knowing Christ to be our righteousness. We thank you that that it's by faith that that robe of righteousness becomes ours as it's set forth and pictured for us in baptism. We thank you for all the blessings that you have bestowed upon us and reminded us about today in this word. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen.